Today I'll be preaching from the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2, and I'll be reading this chapter this morning, or today, verses 1 down to verse number 20, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse number 1. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? When the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent, set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertained to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them, to, gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dungport, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. 
And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we are his servants, and we will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for your mercy, your grace upon our lives. We thank you for the privilege we have to serve you, to worship you, to give our very lives for your honor and for your glory. Dear Lord, I pray today as your word goes forth that you would give me the words you'll have me to say for this occasion. I pray that you would take full control. May Holy Spirit work in each and every heart and life. And I pray, dear Lord, that when it's all said and done, that you will be well pleased. I pray that you would save some lost soul. And for every believer, each heart would be challenged, motivated, and stirred to be closely drawn to you. Do what only you can do. Have your divine way. And we'll be careful to praise you and give you all the honor and glory that's due your holy name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. Alexander Deseversky, a U.S. aviator and engineer, was once visiting a fellow flyer in the hospital. The young man had just lost his leg. Deseversky, who had an artificial leg for some time, tried to cheer him up. The loss of a leg is not so great a calamity, he said. If you get hit on a wooden leg, it doesn't hurt a bit. Try it. The patient raised his walking stick and brought it down hard on the Severski's leg. You see, he said, Cheerfully, if you hit an ordinary man like that, he'd be in bed for five days. With that, the Severski left his friend and limped into the corridor where he collapsed in excruciating pain. You see, it seems the young man had struck the Severski on his good leg. You see, my friends, good intentions are not a guarantee for success. As a matter of fact, good intentions combined with inappropriate actions will ultimately lead to failure. The theme for this Western Baptist Fellowship Conference, Arise and Rebuild, is a call to action, a call to reconstruct what previously existed, a call to get some things done that either are not being done or not being done with the required sense of urgency or level of participation by those who should be involved in the rebuilding. 
The recognition is that there are some things that are broken down. They're not the way they used to be. They're not the way they are supposed to be. Spiritually speaking, I will submit to all of us here today that the world is in a bad place. Our families, our churches, our schools, our communities, our nations are in a state of spiritual disrepair. Morals, the sense of right and wrong, love for God, love for people, standards of living and human decency have been broken down. It has left many exposed to the devastating elements of sinfulness. Children in homes with no direction, marriages struggling to survive, schools that previously provided safety and helpful guidance for hopeful living, wholesome living, are now in an environment where children's lives are being destroyed as they're openly exposed to drugs, alcohol, sex, atheism, and distorted ideology. Walls, my friends, have been broken down. And as a result, we are in trouble. The enemy is having a field day. But like those few Jews said in the book of Nehemiah, I submit to us today that it is time for those of us who know the truth, those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who are part of his local organism, the church. It is a program for furthering his kingdom on earth. My friend, it is time for us to arise and rebuild. But we must recognize that this call to action must be so much more than a good intention. You see, it is very natural. It is very easy. In fact, it is logical to conclude that whenever someone has an intention to rebuild, to accomplish any endeavor for that matter, that their desire is the successful completion of that effort. Why start if the intent is to fail? But clearly, with these wonderful intentions that we have, success is not always the result. With this existing reality in mind, as I pondered my topic, Arise for Success, it was evident that in Arising for Success, as the intended outcome, there are some attitudes, some agendas, some actions that must be in alignment if success is going to take place. I'm, I'm, I'm normally the individual who would give people the benefit of the doubt. And I'm willing today to give the benefit of the doubt that if an individual is going to rise and arise with the intention for success, that the desire and the goal is to have success. However, the idea is to arise for success to be the result 
and not just the intention. Are you hearing me today? If we're going to arise for success, it must be that we are arising for success to be the end result. Because it's very easy for success to be not much more than the intention. The book of Nehemiah is a great book to examine the blueprint for success in rebuilding. We understand that in the context of Nehemiah, uh, the children of Israel were facing a major rebuilding challenge. The walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. But as we read the entirety of this book and as we understand this story, we understand that under the leadership of Nehemiah, they arose for success and they had success. Amen? So the question is, what components, what characteristics were evident in the lives of Nehemiah and these Jews that brought about this success? What attitudes did they have? What actions did they engage in? I'm so glad that you asked me here today because I want us to examine and to extract as best as we can the principles that they applied to have success. I'm going to admit to you here today that I want success. I want to have success. And I believe that we want to have success. But success is not a destination. Success is a journey. What do I mean by that? I simply mean that we cannot afford to just want success today. We cannot just want to have success tomorrow. But we need success today. Tomorrow. Excuse me. The next day. The next week. Next month. Next year. And the years to come. How do we arise for that kind of success. Well, I want you to notice with me, first of all, if we observe Nehemiah in chapter 2, we must, first of all, discern the badness. We must discern the badness. Notice with me that Nehemiah, first of all, had an interest in what was taking place. Nehemiah was very grieved. The Bible says in verse number one, and it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and he said, I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. No, I had not been before time sad in his presence. Nehemiah was sad because even though he was doing well, Even though he was in a palace, make no mistake about it, Nehemiah was in a very comfortable place. He was eating well. He was living well. But his interest was with the condition of his people and his homeland. He had an interest. And because of his interest, he sought to inquire what was going on. Nehemiah asked some 
questions. And these questions were not in an effort to, as we would say colloquially, to look news. It was because of his heart of concern about what was going on. Nehemiah took this a step further and investigated to see for himself. If you look back at chapter 1, you would notice that the Bible says, Then Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked concerning them, the Jews, that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Nehemiah inquired. Nehemiah said, I need to know what's happening. Even though I'm in a very comfortable place, my heart is with the condition of my people. My heart is with the condition of Jerusalem. He was interested. He inquired. And in chapter 2, we recognize that he wanted to investigate. He wanted to see for himself. He had heard the news. But he wanted to observe with his own eyes the state of his beloved city of Jerusalem. And I say to us, as we look around at our world, at our homes, at our communities, at our nations, and at our world, don't take my word for it. Let's look around. Let's see what's happening. Homes are in trouble. Marriages are suffering and struggling. 50% of all marriages end in divorce. That statistic does not change among born-again believers and professing Christians. Schools. Children are dropping out. It's disrespect that's rampant. Drugs and sex and godlessness. I mean, we have churches with religious activity with little personal relationship with God. Empty routine, a lack of passion and excitement for the things of God. There are more churches than ever before, but it seems like there is less love for God. My friends, we are in trouble. Many churches are struggling to keep the doors open. There's a missing generation of people with interest to carry on the work of God. Governments are pouring millions of dollars into social programs without transformation because the heart of man is not addressed. We must be willing to discern the badness. It is not a pretty picture. Nehemiah decided he could not just stay in the palace. He could not just enjoy the good life. He had to go and see for himself the state of Jerusalem. The state of his people. 
And because Nehemiah was willing to discern the badness, notice with me, secondly, he acquired a distinct burden. His eyes affected his heart. Notice with me back in chapter 1 and verse number 4. The Bible says, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had deep heartfelt concern for the situation. Have you ever observed the devastation of our world and shed a tear? Can you say in your heart of hearts that you are genuinely concerned? My friend, I ask this question because this is where change begins. It begins with a heartfelt concern. The heart has to be touched by the societal decay. And if you're not truly concerned, you must proceed to ask the question, why? Because you see, my friends, just because we're not concerned at the level we ought to be does not mean that we are not affected. You see, God, in creating these wonderful bodies that we have, that the psalmist says are so fearfully and wonderfully made, God has given us nerves. And he's given us these nerves as part of a nervous system to allow us to feel. Why is this so important? Because being able to feel allows us to protect ourselves. Can you imagine what it would be like if you couldn't sense heat? You couldn't sense danger? But because we are able to sense and detect harm, we're able to then respond in a way to protect ourselves. My friend, it is so vitally important that we are able to sense the danger in our world, this danger in our communities, and to be touched and to be moved by it. Nehemiah, as a result of his observation, had a distinct burden. He, he was concerned for the situation. And then notice with me uh, his cry to the sovereign. In chapter 1 and verse number 4, the Bible says he prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah says this concern, this burden is more that can be resolved on my own. And he prayed to God. But I find his prayer very instructive. Because rather than pray and simply ask God to fix the situation, notice some aspects that are very important regarding Nehemiah's prayer. He began his prayer to God with confession. This is in verse number five. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy 
for them that love him and observe his commandments. Look at his request. Let thine ear now be attentive and thy eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. Now imagine, Nehemiah is praying to the God of heaven, and the very first thing that he recognizes that must be addressed is the fact that collectively they had failed God. He cried to the sovereign, he said, God, we have sinned. And oftentimes, our response to the, the badness, our response to the decay, our response to the depravity is to cry out to God for help. But my friend, we first must of all understand the root of the problem is sin. And Nehemiah cries to the sovereign and he says, God, confession must be the first priority. In crying to you. But notice he followed up this confession with intercession. Verse number 11, for the sake of time, we don't have time to read all the verses, but he says in verse 11, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah says, Now that I've confessed, I can intercede. It was a prayer of intercession. And oftentimes we want to intercede without addressing the issue of sin. But Nehemiah understood what was needed to get the attention of God. He cried to the sovereign. But notice with me that Nehemiah, in this distinct burden that he had acquired, I love this, he communicated with sincerity. In chapter 2, we understand that the king observes his countenance, seeing that Nehemiah is sad. And Nehemiah was not afraid or ashamed to share his burden, to share his concern. Nehemiah was asked by the king, King, uh, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And Nehemiah uh, was initially afraid. And we can understand why that would have been the case. But Nehemiah uh, understood that, that, that my concern and my uh, fear for my well-being pales in comparison for my concern for my people. You see, Nehemiah could have figured that the king would be upset and mad as a result of him sharing his concern. You say, why is that? Well, the king was the ruler of the kingdom where Nehemiah's people were in captivity. So in effect, the king was a part of the problem. But Nehemiah communicated with sincerity even though he was afraid. One of the biggest and common quote-unquote lies 
told in church is I'm fine. We chuckle because we know it's true. Am I right? How are you doing today? I'm fine. Do you have a problem with me? No. It's often so difficult for us to admit we have a problem. And hence, sadly at times, we carry on these burdens and we carry them around continually. But Nehemiah had a burden and he said what the problem was. You see, oftentimes we don't communicate the problem because if we were to admit honestly, we are more concerned with our personal well-being than the being of the entire body if there truly is a problem. Remember Esther? Remember Esther when, when her, her, her people were at risk of being annihilated? And the, Esther, who was hesitant, was told by Mordecai, listen, you have a responsibility not just to yourself, but to your entire nation. And Esther uh, mustered up the courage uh, to be able to simply say, listen, if I perish, I perish. Why? She understood there was so much at stake. Nehemiah had a distinct burden. And because of his distinct burden, he communicated with sincerity. But notice what else he did. He was able to convince some servants. We read the text, and so for the sake of time, I won't read all these verses, but notice in verse number 12, the Bible says, And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me. He took some servants with him. He took some individuals who could see the situation for themselves. Look at verse 17. He says, then I said unto them, ye see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lieth waste? And the gates thereof are burned with fire? Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. You see, my friends, the problems that we are talking about and the problems that we are experiencing with broken walls uh, will not be resolved by one person. It will require a collaborative effort. Nehemiah had a burden that he had to share and so he took people with him to see the walls in a state of disrepair. God, is God giving you a burden? Share that burden with others. Communicate to help others connect the dots. And if you have a distinct burden for the things of God, you would recognize that oftentimes everybody does not share that burden. But that's okay. Everybody doesn't get it at the same time either. And you don't always have to explain in great detail. Why? Because if you were honest, you didn't even get that burden overnight. God worked in your heart. 
God brought you to this place to see things that he would have you to see. But here's what people are to see. Even if they don't understand your burden, they are to see your burden. They are to see the concern. Nehemiah had a distinct burden. And you see, my friends, if we're going to arise for success, it must be precipitated by a burden that God uses to fuel our hearts to do what he's called us to do. It comes from having a distinct burden. But notice, thirdly, because of this distinct burden, there was very importantly a decision to build. A decision to build. Notice the decisive action in verse number seven. Moreover, I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors beyond the river, that I may convey me over till I come into Judah. Verse number nine, eight and nine chronicles the fact that Nehemiah simply got busy. You see, my friends, when God gives a burden, we must act on it. Great changes and movements throughout history have often begun with one person. This was a monumental effort. Nehemiah understood that. But he also understood that if I don't act based on this burden that God has placed in my heart, nothing will get done. He responded with decisive action. And mark it down. Whenever you respond with decisive action to do what God has laid on your heart to do, mark it down, you will face some devious opposition. Look at verse number 10. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Mark it down. Everybody will not be happy about the fact that you are doing what God has laid on your heart to do. Sadly, the reality is that there are individuals who will conspire and strategize to hinder the work of God. Isn't it sad that even in a local church where you ought to have individuals who are holding hands and uniting hearts for the purpose of building the kingdom, my friend, that there are people in any given church who simply do not want that church to grow. It's mind-boggling. But it is a reality. There will be people who are simply upset that you are trying to build the walls. Sanballat and Tobiah were grieved. Imagine that. And there will be the same ones who are mocking. Look at verse number 19. The Bible says, speaking of these two, that they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that he do? Will he rebel against the king? Devious opposition. But I love that the fact that even though there was devious opposition, Nehemiah had a determined 
position. Amen? Look at verse number 20. Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Amen. Whether you mock, whether you scorn, it's okay. God will prosper us. And what Nehemiah was saying to them, in other words, if God be for us, who can be against us? There was a determined position. And even when it might seem like you're all alone, God is going to give you some diligent people. Amen. Look at this very important pronoun in verses 17 and 18 and verse number 20. There's a transition because throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see Nehemiah time and time again saying, I and I took up. I was so afraid. I prayed to the God of heaven. I came to the governors. I arose in the night, verse number 12. Verse number 13, then I went out by night. Verse number 14, then I went on to the gate. Verse number 15, then went I up in the night. But look at verse number 17. It says, then I said unto them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth with, the gates thereof are burned with fire. Then he said, come and let what? Let us. Build up the wall. Look at verse number 18. And now they said, let us rise up and build. Verse number 20. He will prosper who? Us. God gave Nehemiah some diligent people to get the job done. Amen? His servants will arise and build. Do you have a burden? Share that with others so that they can get involved in what God has called us to do as a people. There was a decision to build. And notice finally, Here's the reason why we ought to arise for success. Because when we arise for success, when we take that burden that God has placed on our hearts because we've discerned the, the badness and we made a conscious and concerted effort uh, to build, we're going to be able to ultimately to delight in the benefits. You will know that the benefits of responding to a burden that God has placed in one's heart is not rooted in selfishness. It's rooted in thinking about others. It's rooted in the success of the entire body. And here's a very important consideration and question. That when we desire success, the question must be posed. Why do we want success? What do we want success for? What is the motive? 
Is it to be liked? Is it for money? Is it for status? Is it for fame? And here's what I've noticed, that the right motive, the reason why it is so critical to any endeavor for success is that the right motive keeps you going when things are not going well. The right motive keeps you going when no one has called your name. The right motive keeps you going when you are criticized unfairly. You see, my friend, the harsh reality for us to understand, this thing called rebuilding, it is hard work. And at times, in our humanity, it can feel like very unrewarding work. And I'm simply saying that to say that Selfish motives in this thing called rebuilding will be exposed. Selfish motives will invariably run out of steam. But the right motives result in keeping one's hand hand to the plow. I don't want you to notice some wonderful benefits that were evident in this rebuilding effort that the children of Israel and the Jews were able to experience. And my friend, if we are willing, by the grace of God, to keep our hands to the plow and to arise for success, my friend, we will have success. And the success will keep us motivated. Let me observe, let's observe a number of benefits that were experienced. Turn over to chapter 6 and verse number 1. Notice the benefit of protection. The Bible says, Now it came to pass when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall that there was no breach left therein, though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. Notice what happened. There was no breach. What was the benefit? Protection. Protected. They were now protected from the elements. They were protected from the enemies. And my friend, when we build up the walls of our homes, of our marriages, of our schools, of our communities, my friend, our children and our society will be protected from the elements and from the devastation of sin. Let's repair the breaches. Let's rebuild the walls. Because we will be protected. But notice there's another benefit observed in chapter 8. And it's the benefit of what I call examination. The Bible says in verse number 1 of chapter 8, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe, look at this, to bring the book of the law of Moses, 
which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And as the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month, and he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Prior to the walls being broken down, there were so many distractions that they were not paying attention to the word of God. But now that they were protected, now that uh, they were in a safe place, the word of God was made available and they read it on from morning until midday and they were attentive. My friend, when we build up the walls, there will not only be the benefit of protection, but there will be the benefit of examination. There's now an opportunity to be attentive, to be focused, to hear what God is saying as he is speaking. Notice another benefit of dedication. As they heard the word, as they were exposed to what thus said the Lord, they responded in obedience to what God said. There was dedication. Verse number 13 of chapter 8, and on the second day were gathered together the chief of all the fathers of all the people, the priests, the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, and even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. I mean, they found something out that it seems as though they had forgotten. And look at verse number 16. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house. And in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim, and all the congregation of them that were come again out of captivity made boots and sat down under the boots. For since the day of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto the day had not the children of Israel done so. Wow. And there was very great gladness. And also day by day, from the first day until the last, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Look at the wonderful benefit of the walls having been rebuilt. There were now a people that was determined to dedicate their lives to doing what God wanted them to do. Dedication. I tell you, one of the wonderful benefits... And privileges of doing what God has called you to do is seeing people dedicate their lives to the Lord. What a wonderful blessing. And notice the benefit of consecration. Chapter 9 and verse 1. The children of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloths upon the earth. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They consecrated themselves. 
They set themselves apart for God's use. And then finally, notice the benefit of unification. In chapter 10 and verse 28, 29, notice that all the people of all the different backgrounds and nationalities and tribes came together, separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God. I look at verse 29. I love this. They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law. Let the church say amen. Which was given by Moses, a servant of God. And to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord. And his judgments and his statutes. These people who had been scattered and separated were now unified. They came together as a nation once again. Why? The walls had been rebuilt. Psalm 133 and verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. Unification. And I tell you, you're a child of God. God has touched your heart. These benefits of arising and rebuilding ought to delight you. When we delight in the benefits, when we see the benefits afar off, it gives us the determination to stick with it. Even when there is opposition, when there is difficulty, when there are problems beyond our capacity to solve Recognize the benefits and delight in the benefits. Let's arise for success. And let it be that the success that we are rising for is the result. Not just the intention. With God on our side, we can be successful. And I trust that in these difficult days in which we live, with walls having been broken down, that we'll recognize that God has given us what we need to accomplish this rebuilding effort. Let's do it for our families, for our communities for our churches, for our world. God is able. I implore us, I beg of all of us, let us arise for success.